Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. It's that time of year again. Thanksgiving and the winter holidays are just around the corner. But this year is like no other. With the coronavirus pandemic still very much with us, how will we be gathering, traveling, and celebrating differently this year? There's a strong emotional and traditional pull to be with loved ones these days, especially after a really rough year. But should you? What if you have a high-risk person in your family or you're high-risk yourself? We're not trying to ruin your holidays here but we do want to know the facts, the risks, and creative ways to overcome them this season. We're talking about that today with Dr. Aaron Bromage, PhD. He's an associate professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. He focuses on the immune system and infectious diseases. You've heard him on this podcast before when the pandemic was still pretty new to all of us. Dr. Bromage isn't an expert on this coronavirus, but he's closely tracking the science and writes about it in plain language for the general public. Dr. Bromage, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me on the show. I want to start by talking about Thanksgiving, which is the closest holiday on the calendar. The big gathering around the table with relatives and loved ones. Is that happening this year? And what might it look like? You know, people wearing masks, maybe sitting farther apart or outside? Yeah, so it's certainly going to be happening this year. It's just, I think it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that we are doing this in the safest possible fashion. Um, we're seeing you know, some pretty serious spikes in um, new cases around the country right now. And while we're not seeing that sort of come with hospitalizations and deaths increasing at this stage, we definitely do know that those particular metrics lag um, the new cases. And what I'm worried about, especially with the, the Thanksgiving Day um, sort of festivities that we have, is we've all heard people that not so much being coronavirus deniers, but reopen the economy sort of people that sort of say, isolate the old, um, let the young get it and run through them because they're low risk. Well, we know with Thanksgiving, we bring many generations and many households together in the one house to actually meet and to celebrate you know, the Thanksgiving day. And so what worries me is when we start coming together, we are really looking at the opportunity for this virus to move from the young to the old, and that could really set us up for some, a really troubling December. I think when we're looking at what we're doing for Thanksgiving, we need to look at the community that we live in. Um, do we have high prevalence or low prevalence of infections? Um, what are the risks within my own household? What are the risks between the households that may be coming with us? And if you are carrying any of those risk factors, and it can be risks for um, you know, poor outcomes, but it can also be risks because the job you have puts you in harm's way or in the way of infection more often. And so you've got to look at that and make a decision is, it really worthwhile for you to get together with as many people as you did in the past or in the way that you did the past and really come down to a pragmatic, rational way of what you should do. I look at my own family, for example, we only have 
um, you know, one relative in the United States, and it's my mother-in-law, 74 years old, um, you know, a couple of slight comorbidities, but it certainly is a risk. But she's also alone by herself. So we are doing things a little bit differently. We are going to get together. But what we're doing as a family is we're quarantining before she arrives. We'll have a test before she comes here. We've bought HEPA filters to go into the house in the main areas we'll be occupying. And we'll do a little bit of ventilation of the space. Um, it's getting cold where I live now, so we can't do a lot of ventilation, but we're going to do that to try to keep it as safe as possible. If you're in other parts of the US where you can actually be outdoors, we absolutely, absolutely should do it. Um, outdoors, we know is safer, you can physically distance more, and the infection has a real hard time taking hold in people um, when it's jumping through the air outside getting to another person. So it's going to look different right around the country, depending on risk factors, the number of families, um, the infection rates, and what the environment is doing at the time. Is it raining? Is it cold? Is it hot? Um, about what's going to do. So the risks are going to be different everywhere. I keep thinking about something that I heard the CDC report a few weeks ago, that they think that small family gatherings may be driving sort of the rise in case numbers that we're seeing um, right now. Um, and that's, you know, when it, when it comes to the holidays, you kind of upgrade to big family gatherings. And, you know, I would imagine that a lot of folks are not necessarily taking all the precautions that, that you're taking um, for your family uh, gathering this year. So does that, um, is that ring true to you? Is that on your mind as well when it comes to these, you know, potential for small family gatherings to really kind of lead to a bigger surge in cases after the holidays? So in the news, we get the, the rare but big events. So we get the, the bar, we get the restaurants, we get the church. Um, so they happen and we see these large spreading events in those different places, um, but they're not the most common events that we see. And right from the beginning of this pandemic, we knew it was inside houses, um, these smaller gatherings where the infection can actually, the virus can move from one person to another um, most efficiently. And so this isn't just new, it's just that with um, you know, uh, stopping the as many interactions that we're having in the community by closing bars and restricting restaurants, we've suppressed that type of transmission. And so now we can really see that households are really driving the pandemic um, in our local communities. Uh, I look at a local case, one that I'm very familiar with, um, the mother got infected at work, um, did not know it, so worked in a hospital, but did not know that she got infected until she developed some symptoms later in the week. Um, but she infected one of her children, who then in turn infected another one of her children, and then the husband. And so out of this household of five people, four of them got infected over the last two weeks, all from a single introduction from the community from work into there. So households are definitely um, a big driver of the spread of this infection throughout our community. And the thought of really gathering multiple families or going to multiple Thanksgiving Day events um, really has me on high alert in regards to what it may mean for what December looks like um, for our communities. Mm -hmm. um, what if someone in your family has already had COVID and recovered? 
are they safe to be around or is it still kind of too iffy when in terms of what we know about how long immunity to the virus will last? So they're definitely safe. If they've been infected and recovered, they're definitely safe to be around. Um, we know from some of the viral culture studies um, and then some of the, the studies looking back at what has happened that after you know, diagnosis uh, on a mild case, um, it is you know, very, very rare for anyone, even if they're still testing positive in PCR, to be able to infect another person. Um, if they're in the moderate and severe, it may be 20 days after original diagnosis. But we know that once, um, once symptoms disappear and enough time has passed, you know, 10 to 20 days, that they're no longer um, put anybody at risk for infection. Now, are they at risk for infection themselves from somebody else? Well, the, you know, the CDC updated their guidance to say that immunity lasts about three to four months. And they only said three to four months is because that's all the data that we have at the moment. As we push through in time and we get a longer data series, we'll start to know whether it's three months or six months or 12 months in regards to the protection that it provides. Again, we do see these rare events. And in my opinion, it's actually good to see these rare events that people that have been infected and recovered are being infected again, because as long as they remain rare, we know that for the vast majority of people, immunity must be longer than what these rare events are showing for these few people. So at this stage, we know that infection recovery, um, it, it's very difficult to be reinfected within three months and it's starting to look more like six months or longer at this stage. It doesn't mean that they can drop their guard completely. Um, my own work when we're doing these infection um, trials with animals, I can take a animal that is immune through vaccination and I can overwhelm um, that protection by just giving a high enough uh, viral dose. And so that would be the same with humans as well that you've got immunity and that will provide you protection against maybe a normal dose. Um, but if you had somebody that was really releasing a lot of virus into a space, um, being infected, recovered does not mean that you are 100% protected from reinfection or becoming sick again. That's good to keep in mind because certainly there are a lot of people who have gotten the virus and recovered at this point. So it's good to think about that. This next question isn't really about infectious disease, but about interacting with people who don't want to wear masks or maybe think that this is all a hoax or overblown. Um, if someone who will be at your gathering, whether it's online or in person, has views that aren't supported by science and yours are, how might you handle that? Um, do you avoid them, try to reason with them, or just sort of ignore whatever unfounded statements they may, they may put out there? Yeah, so I, I had had that question posed to me um, back at the very beginning of summer um, about anxiety related to having people coming over and visiting or visiting somebody else. And we came up with a fairly simple solution for that, which is before the event, discuss what the rules are of your house or ask what the rules of the house are that you're visiting. Um, and if they don't align with your sensibilities, with what you value for your own health, then I would either disinvite them or not go myself, depending on, you know, who, 
who was making the decisions with the household. So I think it's important at the start before you go to one of these to understand what the, the groundwork looks like, the framework looks like when you get there. Um, with somebody that chooses, and if, say if you get into a situation that somebody is choosing not to wear a mask, and we know with Thanksgiving, when, the, when we sit down to eat, masks are coming off anyway, even if you were going to wear them right. um, around family members. Um, but basically, somebody that is sitting quietly, not wearing a mask, um, even sitting quietly and eating and not wearing a mask, presents a much lower risk than somebody that is a very loud talker or bellowing out or shouting. Um, and so I, I don't look at people that are not wearing a mask as a great risk to me until they get into my space or until they start making lots of noise. And in those particular cases, I just, rather than making a fuss and maybe getting into a more risky situation with them telling me that it's a you know pandemic or that it's not real and shouting and yelling at me, um, I just, get up and I move away. Um, and I've done that a lot over the last six months is I have no desire to shame anybody for the decisions they're making personally. Even if they are putting other people at risk, I am not putting myself at risk to try to chastise them on their life choices. So um, I just choose to move away from them. If it's in an establishment, if we're in a restaurant or if we're you know, shopping and somebody's doing that, I just, I, I get, I move away. And then sometimes I've actually spoken to the manager and asked what their policy is. And if this is regular, they let this happen, then I just don't shop there or go there anymore. So I make decisions that are smart for myself and my family and try not to judge other people and certainly not judge other people in a vocal way because um, there's nothing that I can say that will change their mind. Right. And also, I like what you were saying about kind of knowing what to expect when you're going into a situation, you know, how people, how other people will be behaving as best you can tell that ahead of time. That's yep. good to know. I want to talk a little bit about just socializing in general, which is something people were kind of able to do with some ease when it was warm outside. But now that it's getting colder, it's not so easy to socialize outdoors. So what adjustments can we make to sort of get this, um, you know, this real human need for, for socialization? Yeah, so I'm, I'm struggling with that right now because I am, you know, teaching a class on infection and immunology to uh, 64 undergraduates and I'm teaching it to a screen of blank video screens because the students have it turned off and it's, right. it's really hard not having those interactions with the students that I'm used to. So what I have decided to do is um, give those students that are comfortable a little bit more of an opportunity to interact with their professor. So literally just before this um, interview, I had invited a group of seven, so I kept it small, um, down to our brand new eating area that we have at the university that has 50 foot high ceilings, great ventilation and plenty of space and is very quiet. And I bought lunch for them. And so we spread out, we were all six feet away. We could have a conversation because it was quiet. Um, it was safe because of what was happening with the air, the ventilation, the filtration. And it gave us the opportunity to be able to um, just interact on a, a more normal level. So when we're looking at this just in general in our personal lives, they're the, the type of things that I am not close everything down and never interact till this pandemic's over, but I'm also not one that's going to take undue risks. What we need to do is just be smarter about how we do this. So um, 
you know, we're looking at, again, I'll go back to, to my mother-in-law. Um, she really enjoys sharing a glass of wine once a week with one of her friends in the neighborhood, but they're both aware of their own individual risks. So they've set up one of their sunrooms that can get a little bit more ventilation. They're putting a HEPA filter into there. They're, spending, they're uh, putting chairs 10 feet apart. Um, and they're just going to, to continue enjoying each other's company, but do it in a safer fashion. And I think that that's what we need to do as we're heading into winter in much of the country where we are going to be forced indoors is when we were it's through summer and we could have 10 or 15 people around, we've got to think of having smaller groups if we're going to do it. We need to um, really understand that, you know, one of the infections that was described, um, one of the clusters that was described this summer was just three college students sitting around over a game of Monopoly. And that was enough that one person infected the two others. So we still do need the distance. Right. Um, but we really have to think about putting layers of defense together, which is distance, masks if we can, improving ventilation. If we can't improve ventilation, uh, make sure that we add supplemental filtration, um, you know, good hand washing, just things like that. And if we do that and we take this approach of being rational rather than an abstinence only or an all or nothing type approach, um, we can approach this pandemic with a way that we can still have these personal interactions that we need and we want, but we're not doing it in a way that is adding undue risk to ourselves or increasing the risk in our community. And when it comes to things like you know, holiday parties, which a lot of people will, will miss this year and maybe try to think of a creative way to have them. At that point, is it just sort of down to those factors that you were talking about, you know, being in the right place with the right ventilation and maybe just keeping a gathering small? Is that sort of what a holiday party could maybe look like this year? Yeah, so one of the, um, one of the most important things that we're starting to realize with infections is the, the impact of duration. Um, the longer the event runs, the higher the probability or the risk will be that people will get infected. Um, and we can go to the Washington State Choir infection that happened right back in the beginning of the year, March, April, um, where 52 out of the 60 plus people at the choir became infected. One of the studies that was done on that was showed what would be the effect of adding ventilation or filtration. The, the thing that had the biggest effect on reducing um, new infections was duration. If they would have just kept it to 30 to 45 minutes rather than two to two and a half hours, um, they would have had, I think it's one fifth the number of infections. Wow. So what we have to think about is we can't just take a single approach or no approach to um, you know, keeping ourselves safe. We need to take a, a layered approach to what we're doing if we are going to gather. Um, keep it small, so fewer families as possible. Keep it distanced, so if you've got an area where you can set up two separate tables to the two families looking at each other, but you know, with six or further feet between them, that makes it better. If we can crack open some windows, even better. If we can add extra ventilation, even better. And then just keep it short, like just have a, you know, a short meeting, you know, an hour of having some sort of event. So we don't want to just take one approach to doing it. We need to layer the defenses. And by doing that, we lower the risks. Um, and each of us are going to have a different risk tolerance, but also the risks are different based on what we have in our household and what's happening in the community. So 
um, it needs to be a balanced approach that we take to doing these holiday times safely or as safe as possible, given what we're facing right now. I saw that you um, tweeted recently about not having eaten inside of a restaurant since like mid-March and you were um, applauding one particular place in Rhode Island that was doing it right. You know, they had hospital grade HEPA filters and floor to ceiling dividers between tables and lots of other measures. Have you gotten to go there for a meal yet? Uh, was it a, a, an okay kind of experience if you did? Yeah, we actually, my wife and I had our first dinner date um, at Portofay restaurants in Providence. We'd never eaten there before. Um, and basically the owner of that restaurant um, grabbed all of the available science around controlling infections in enclosed spaces and layered every single one of these defenses that he could get his hands on together um, to make a, um, a safer dining environment. Um, for example, I'm not just talking about mechanical things, um, he had a whole area that was going to be sort of a conference large gathering area where he had made these beautiful tables out of rough sawn wood. Mm -hmm. And he realized that he was not going to be able to use that area for the foreseeable future. So he took this beautiful rough sawn wood and then made barriers between the tables with lead lights in them between the tables so that you had your, um, a physical barrier between us and the table that was next to us. And it created this beautiful, intimate little, um, you know, cabin type environment for you to eat in. Yeah, you like your own in, private, it, private dining room kind of. It really was a private, I mean, the closest person that you could put your eyes on was 10 feet away and they were facing a slightly different direction. Wow. Um, you could see the upper part of the room was actually had this glow of UVC in there. Um, you could feel the air move and then right throughout the whole restaurant, you could actually see the HEPA filters actually scattered throughout the restaurant there. And it wasn't noisy. Um, so they kept the noise down, even with all this extra mechanical filtration going on. Um, and it was an amazing dining experience, but it was just also a fantastic safe experience and you could see that he really embraced it because what he had created when you first walked into the restaurant um, was this little showcase showing all the different things that he had put in place to keep people safe everything from a cutout of one of the new filters that he put in compared to a traditional filter that he had the uv lights the temperature scanners so um, i will say that not all spaces are equal in regards to safety and I really do encourage, um, you know, boards of health, um, you know, state health departments, those type of things that are making decisions about whether businesses should open or close should really think about it's not a one size fits all. There are people and there are businesses that have invested heavily in making their environment safe for their, their patrons. And those, those people should be rewarded for that particular effort and endeavor by being able to stay open. And this includes everything from gyms to restaurants. Like I know some gyms have invested huge amounts of money into the air filtration and air exchange mm -hmm. to make it a safe environment. That is different to a basement gym where they may just have a wall air conditioning unit. And I think the same thing with these restaurants. I mean, I would go back there again in a heartbeat um, because I, I am aware of the risks that are posed by restaurants and enclosed spaces. 
and I honestly have not felt more comfortable in a space um, for a long period of time, like a commercial space in a long period of time. And the, the good part for me was um, you could see the employees actually both valued um, and understood the measures that were in place because they felt comfortable working in that particular environment and were really happy with their boss for what they had put forward and, you know, done for them to get their jobs back. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such great care that's been taken both for employees and also for customers. That sounds like a really wonderful experience. That's, it that's really great. was. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about travel now, which is a huge aspect of uh, the typical holidays. Um, super busy time for especially, you know, air travel, road, you know, road trips, all those things. Long lines at the airports and, you know, every seat on a plane that's full. The CDC says the safest place to be is at home, but that's tough for a lot of people who naturally want to get together, especially after a tough year like this one. How might people weigh the risks versus the benefits of traveling? Yeah, I mean, I'm doing quite a bit of travel, but I'm doing the travel out of necessity, um, you know, for work. Um, I, I'm not quite sure I'm there for traveling with my family, for example, just for pleasure and leisure. Um, I think that we're still not there yet. Um, and it may be a while before we get there. Um, in my travels up until now, um, everything had been, so the airports were empty. And so I, I'd only had out of the 20 flights I've done recently, just one experience in a TSA waiting line where I actually felt uncomfortable. So I got up and left and waited till it cleared and then came back through it. Um, but I will say that on my most recent trip home where normally the seat beside me is empty and that is through design by the airline, all of a sudden there was a warm body there and it made me feel really quite uncomfortable given the other protective measures that I've done with my life to keep myself and my family you know, free from infection. So um, I am a little bit concerned about the Thanksgiving travel um, that I don't think it's going to have the same empty um, airports is what I've had for the last four months or so. Um, and I think people really need to weigh it carefully. I mean, if you've got the choice of driving or flying, driving is absolutely the way to go. Uh, every hotel that I've stayed in till now has been um, really good with their quality in regards to their COVID responses and have felt very safe with those. So if you need to drive and stay in a hotel, just check out the hotel before you get there online, make sure they have a COVID policy even better if they've got a remote check-in facility and you can use your phone to open the door, um, just limit those interactions. Um, and that's the great thing about driving is you can choose the interactions you want to have. Um, flying has a higher risk associated with it. Um, you need to step up the PPE, you need to step up your awareness of the situations that you're in. When you're on a plane, it's all about the person that's sitting beside you. Mm -hmm. um, if that's a family member, it starts to become safer. If that's a random person there, then, um, you know, a cough, a sneeze, heavy breathing from them can actually be your unfolding. So you, you need to make sure that you've got the proper, you know, mask, um, if I had someone sitting beside me regularly and I didn't wear glasses already, I would have some sort of eye protection there. But I think we really do need to weigh this up um, about the risk of travel and then truly think about it uh, from the point of view that if you're going from a low risk area to a high risk area, you could be that one that brings it back to your community and seeds it there 
um, the same way, you know, you heading into, um, you know, moving, we're just going to be moving this virus even more around the country than what it currently is. And undoing, I look at New England, undoing the great job that a lot of New England has done to get this under control. They can't afford to be reseeded with heavy levels of infection going into the winter. Because if they look like the mid part of the country heading into winter, then winter becomes very dark and very serious for everybody living there. And I, I do worry about the hospitals at that stage. So I think we all have a responsibility when it comes around to, to traveling, not just to do it because we want to, but you know, making a decision, is this really smart? Just because we can, should we be doing it? I think that's what everyone should be asking. And thinking about the, the possible consequences of those decisions too. Yep. Um, to your earlier point, does the length of time, say that you're on a, an airplane or in a train car, does that make a difference to the risk of a, of a trip? Yeah, absolutely. So not so much in a car, because again, you should be there with family, albeit if you're sharing a car with other people, it does become risky. And we do see that in uh, some of the infection data as well as looking at people like bus drivers and Uber drivers, um, cab and taxi drivers, um, having a much higher rate of infection than the general community. So we see it in cars too. But if you're traveling with your own household, then it's not really a risk. Um, but we definitely know that um, infection is related to duration and dose. So if you just get exposed to a little bit of a virus over a short period of time, the chances of infection are quite low. But a little bit of virus that you're getting over a period of hours and it's able to build up and build up and build up, the chance of infection increases and then a high dose over an extended period of time, then you're really up there and you're going to become infected. So dose and duration are very important in regards to infection. Now you have very little control over dose because you have no idea if a person is infected or not, is shedding the virus or not, and if they're a low dose shedder or a high dose shedder. So the only thing you can control is duration. So um, when you start thinking about train trips, short versus long, short is safer than long. Um, flights are a little different. Um, you would go with the idea of short flight is safer than a long flight. Um, and I would agree with that, except for I know a little bit about aircraft in the sense that most puddle jumpers and some of the small planes that do one, one and a half hour flights don't have the same air exchange and air filtration as mm. what we get in the, the larger jets. Um, in the larger jets that do four and six hour flights, um, we actually have HEPA filters. We have um, complete cabin air exchange every three to four minutes. So... Um, that reduces risk and then that helps out with the longer duration. So, but in general, when we look at things is dose and duration are the key factors in infection. And so if we can keep um, duration down, be it in a church, be it in a house, be it traveling, that's what we want to aim to do. Okay. That's a good piece of advice. If you're thinking about traveling, should you get a COVID test before or after your trip? And do you need to plan to quarantine when you arrive and when you get home? Yeah, so I can tell you what I do um, because I, am, I do move around the, the country a fair bit with work. So um, I make sure that in the three to four days leading up to me traveling somewhere, 
I am reducing my interactions. Um, not quarantine, but I'm making sure I'm not putting myself into a restaurant or uh, going to, you know, doing a lot of grocery shopping or anything where I could potentially pick up a community acquired infection. Um, I get a test before I go um, just to make sure that I am not going to get going to get to a location and become part of the problem or be stranded there because if I'm flying to California and I get my test result when I'm flying, I can't fly back. I am stuck there for at least 10 days, um, possibly longer. So I like to have that information before I go so that I know I can return um, and know that I'm not adding to the problem of where I'm going. Um, when I get back, I do the same thing. I limit my interactions for two or three days and then go and get a, a test and you know in massachusetts we ha have access to pretty good testing i have access to good testing at work and then with the work that i'm doing around the country um, i'm tested almost every day i'm there as well so i am more fortunate than most that i have access to um, quality testing um, not at my disposal but um, fairly easy to acquire but i work on the sort of a four four principle four days before and four days after i'm limiting my interactions and having tests there that makes sense. I did want to talk about shopping, which is a big part of the, you know, some of the upcoming holiday seasons here. I'm going to go ahead and guess that online shopping is probably going to be the rule this year. But if someone wants to head to a local shop or a big box store, like on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, what do they need to keep in mind as far as the virus? Is it any different than the things they've already been doing if they're, if they go out to a store? Yeah, I'd, I'd be really reluctant about Black Friday, big box, line up outside the store, scramble to get in. I, I think you're just setting yourself up for problems for not just COVID, but just in general. I think it's crazy. Um, I would be avoiding that wherever I can. Um, and you know, online is obviously the safest with this, um, but we also know who is hurting the most out of this pandemic and that's small and local businesses. Um, I would work out a way to shop local and spend money there on Black Friday because you know you can do that safer because there's going to be fewer people there. It is supporting your local economy and your local community and local businesses. Uh, I think that wherever you have the opportunity to do that, um, that's where if you're a Black Friday person, go and dump your money into your local businesses and support them and help them get through what is going to be a, a tougher, um, you know, holiday shopping season for them. Right. That's, that's a good bit of advice too. What is it? Small business Saturday. I think that's usually the, yeah, the day. Please make Black it Friday. small business Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, just spend you your go. money there because I, I just think the risks of lining up closely packed, trying to push in through a store, um, even in a well-controlled one, I, I just don't see how you can um, do that safely given what is happening right now in most of our communities. For public gatherings, which is a big part of, you know, parades on Thanksgiving Day, maybe a religious service, a sporting event, going to a movie or a New Year's Eve party, that means you're inside or in some cases outside with a lot of people that you don't live with, you don't know who they are. Is that too risky? Yeah, I mean, each situation's a little bit different. I mean, we always hear why are the protests okay, but the rallies are not. Well, we really shouldn't be doing either. 
but if we are doing them, work out how to do it safely. So anytime we can gather and gather outdoors and be distanced, even if you wanted to put 500 people together in a park, if you can do it outdoors and distanced, it is a safe, it's a safe way of getting together. Um, I, I think that I know a lot of churches, a lot of houses of worship um, are really struggling with what they're going to be doing this year, especially over the Christmas season, the New Year season, um, really thinking about how they can gather safely. And it's going to get really tough um, when those doors and those windows, the ventilation needs to shut down, it's going to become you know, much more risky. But I think that if we're looking at a Thanksgiving Day parade and people can be spread out along the path that they're going, um, I, I know and I feel that these things are not 100% risk-free. We can't say that, but they certainly are a lower risk, high reward outcome where we can gather, we can be social animals like we are, but not really um, add to the disease burden in our community. So I, I, I really wish people would embrace more of the, the approach of moderation rather than abstinence or all in and just say, yes, we can do it, but let's think about how we do it in a safer fashion. Um, because if we don't think about how we're going to do it in a safer fashion and we find ourselves in that situation, if you don't have the tools and resources and thoughts, the plan already on how to make it safe, then inherently it becomes risky. So, um, Again, I don't think life should be shutting down. I just think that we need to have moderation in what we're doing and making smart decisions in regards to distance, mask use, outdoors where we can. And if we do that, we can recoup a lot of what this virus has taken away from us. Right. Um, and, you know, we've certainly all been through a lot this year with the pandemic. Um, it has taken away a lot, as, as you just mentioned. And some people maybe aren't as vigilant as they were this spring when everything was you know, very new and it all felt kind of chaotic. What's your take on avoiding risks from feeling burned out by it all? I'm exhausted. And I, I'm, I know a lot of people in the public health field are exhausted. And I know a lot of friends and family that are just living with this are exhausted with this and I get it. Um, I, I am worried that I am taking more risks than what I was in April and May. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to have to up my own personal game in regards to this. I mean, I'm actually, I'm certain that we will have to. Um, I am worried that, I mean, I look locally that we've done such a good job of suppression of really keeping infection numbers down that there are more and more people saying that this is really not um, an issue. This, this virus is not a risk. Whereas when I talk to you know, people that are working or live in New York, in New York City, um, it, it's like many of them have gone through PTSD and right. are too scared to go out of their house because they, they live with it. I mean, everyone that I've spoken to in New York um, knows somebody or knows of somebody who died. Um, whereas, you know, locally, it's like, well, I think the grandmother of one of my kids' friends passed away. And so it hasn't touched us as close. So um, I think that when you haven't been hit as closely, it is much harder to keep the vigilance up in what you're doing. Um, but I've, if we don't, we don't become smart 
with what we're doing, we are all going to know somebody um, by the time spring rolls around. Sorry, that was a little dark, but. <laughs> no, that's, that's very true. I feel like, you know, there's been a few points throughout the last several months when I've felt like, you know, maybe like I've let my guard down a little bit and then I hear of someone else close to me that has either been exposed or been infected and it kind of really kind of wakes you up and makes you remember <laughs> the risks. So, um, but yeah, we're, we're all pretty exhausted, I think, by all yeah, of this. Yeah, I mean, I'm finding I'm tuning my risks more, like where through April and May, you know, I was wiping down groceries and taking yeah. shoes off and doing those things where that doesn't even cross our minds right now. Um, we really focus on the, the high infection risk probabilities, such as indoors, enclosed spaces, poor ventilation, no masks. Um, I really focus our effort on those things that account for 99% of all infections rather than getting so anxious about everything else that may only account for 1% of infections. Um, I think that what I have done is tuned my risk more appropriately, but um, I, I think that my risk, personal risk is going to start increasing as we go further into November that um, I think that you know, a little bit more vigilance needs to step back into all our lives, even if you are in a low risk community and those people in a high risk community, you better, better have your game on because it's looking rough in many parts of the country right now. Right. A lot of people have pointed out the risks involved with loneliness and being isolated. And these can be big issues at the holidays, even in a normal year. And, you know, screens are better than nothing, but it's not like they're the real thing when it comes to being with friends and family. So what are ways to feel close, even if we can't actually be together in the same space? Yeah, so um, the loneliness side of things is real, um, especially if you are you know, living alone, um, it, it, it's tough. Um, and so that was part of the reason I got, you know, my students together today, you know, just in small groups and in a safe way, because being so isolated um, is just not mentally mentally healthy for, for anyone. Um, and I am a true advocate of, um, I don't necessarily want to come up with other ways to see people remotely. Um, I think that smart decisions and good planning can lead you to have personal contacts, engage people, uh, you know, in face-to-face -face and still do this safely. And I think that that's what we should be looking at for meeting spaces and how we get people together. Um, you know, going and visiting a friend, you know, in a mall where you've got wide open spaces and you can spread out and still do something a little bit normal. Um, you know, outdoors whenever you possibly can go to the park. I, I would not want to be advocating for, you know, more zoom meetings or more, you know, anything. More screen where, time. Yeah. Yeah. More screen time. I, I think that, that is just a, that's going to lead to much more isolation, um, much more people getting into their own heads. And I think that that could end up being a, not a bigger problem than the pandemic, but we don't need to have two problems happening at the one time or 10. So I think that we should really think about ways that we can gather and gather safely um, and just think about, you know, the general rules, keep it small, keep it distant, keep it masked, keep it short with time. And if we can do those type of things, we definitely lower the risk. 
Well, you've given us a lot of good things to think about in that regard, so, so thank you. Uh, Dr. Aaron Bromage, thank you once again for all the great advice. We really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure being on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can tune in next time. Until then, keep up with WebMD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.